0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network.
3: your host for Speaking Broadly. I am ecstatic to be launching a new season with two extraordinary guests. My first guest is someone I know from my time back at Food & Wine magazine. He was a Best New Chef in 2013. And my second guest is also someone who you all will be familiar with from Food & Wine magazine. She was the epicenter of trend, the Mm -hmm. oracle of the new. But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about some food that I had when I was in Portland, Maine. So I am... um, a bit of a donut whore. Like I love, I love donuts. But the thing that I like even more than donuts is crawlers. And I think the reason that I love crawlers is the reason that most people love donuts, which is they go way back to my childhood. I have chased crullers since Mitchell London made in- wow. incredible crawlers. Flashback. Flashback. That's Kate Crater. She's one of my guests. Kate, do you remember that Mitchell London crawler?
4: I do. Well, I remember. I think he had um, absurdly good cupcakes before cupcakes was something that you were embarrassed about. <laughs> okay, so I don't remember his crawlers, but good to know. There you go. That was my ur-crawler. And then, of course...
3: Uh, Danny Meyer with Daily Provisions does a mean cruller. But if you are a cruller fan like I am, and you're in Portland, Maine, you have to go to Hi-Fi, because they have three different kinds of crullers, and they are light and fluffy and miraculously don't seem greasy, which I know is not possible. But I think that I never discovered that they weren't greasy, because I ate them so fast. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so anyway. That's my tip of the day. Hi-fi Portland, Maine. Crawlers. My first guest is Jason Vincent. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. It's really, really great to see you. See you both. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> truly. That's <laughs> crazy. Oh. So... Jason, we first met when you were at Nightwood in Chicago, and then you did an extraordinary thing, aside from winning a lot of awards and cooking phenomenal food that, that people in Chicago loved. You stepped away from the stove for a couple of years, and you have come back, I have to say, gigantically, because <laughs> you have a new restaurant called Gigantic that just has also uh, collected a number of awards and you're in new york to collect one tell us what what are you doing here
5: well uh so uh we giant got named one of the best new restaurants uh in the country top 10 by bon appetit and uh you know we 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 are very 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 proud of what we do there every day and you know it wasn't one of those things you know we didn't even like announce it to the staff Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we were just like let's just this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be the best. We're supposed to come in every day and be the best. And it's like, you know, the, the award is very nice and very flattering. Um, but we also kind of didn't want to let it, you know, permeate, affect like how we went about our business every day. You know, like you win the World Series, you don't change what you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you keep doing it. Um, so it's, it's a little
3: bit of a head trip. <laughs> like trying to figure that out. Right, balancing that, yeah. uh, the pride. And I think often the restaurant teams are motivated by that pride. They know they're doing good work, but right. when they get that outside um, approbation, it makes them stand a little taller or work a little harder. But one of the things that you're doing at Giant that I am in awe of is treating your staff as though you're running a real. Business, so there's healthcare, there's time off, and I want to understand what has inspired you to do that, and what you think the net effect is with your with your staff.
5: Um, I mean, I think I think the effect is you know I, I don't we didn't have to look very far to find good reasons to do that you know from um, staff retention and you know being happy you know when we were opening Giant we. Um, I have a very I got a lot of people that I can ask a lot of advice and somebody had told me that they walked into state bird provisions in San Francisco and they were stunned at how legitimately happy the staff was. And like, you know, you can you can fake it, you know, good restaurant people can fake it. But this was a restaurant person noticing just the just it was something else. It was different. So I was able to email Stuart and say, hey, man, <laughs> what do you do? And he goes, he goes, it's really simple. We treat them like human beings, and we don't burn them out. And, like, yeah, crazy, right? You, you
3: know, it's funny. <laughs> I, get, I have such an emotional reaction to that because it's un, so unusual, and it shouldn't be. I think that's where the emotion, like, that disconnect, the dissonance between these people who provide service every day working so hard to make so other hard. people happy, and yet... Uh, they're they're doing it selflessly because the effect on their own lives is really tough.
5: It is. Yeah, I mean just seeing you know to take an example, a recent example, we had we had a night at the restaurant where we didn't have any large parties. So it was all two tops. So like that becomes very 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 draining when you literally have to give twice the amount of service for the same result. Right. So It was one of those like freak out moments, you know, and with with some of the servers and they're just like, listen, this is this is very difficult right now. And just the fact that they could say that to me and say it to each other and not, you know. Push push a dishwasher or throw a plate at them or you know or what push a dishwasher nobody push a dishwasher. <laughs> that was that was that was extreme it wow. doesn't happen I've never seen that happen <laughs> but you know what I mean like just act out I right. guess um, and we can all just stop and realize that um, it's just dinner you know what I mean it's like at the end of the day we're we're just making dinner. And we don't have to. We're not saving the world. We don't have to. We have to treat each other like human beings, and if we lose that, then we then we've lost.
3: So I want to go back to the time that you took off before we get to your amazing, awesome dinner that I keep reading about. And I'm like ready to <laughs> dive into your pile of uni, but uh, <laughs> but first let's talk about how tough it was to step away from the restaurant. You did it because you had a, a new baby and you really wanted to put your life back into some kind of balance. Yeah. Although perhaps one could say like leaving the restaurant completely, that's a different kind of balance altogether, uh, imbalance altogether. But people had said to you, you know, don't do it, dude. Like you're never going to come back. It's, And now we can talk about it. Um you have come back stronger than ever, ever. It seems like there's a good plant metaphor in here. Like you, 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 <laughs> yeah. know, you, you cut them down to have them grow stronger. But um, how was it that you were able to ignore that advice? And, and what do you think's behind that advice from your peers?
5: Uh, well, I mean, the scary thing is that they actually weren't my peers. They were absolutely my superiors. You know wow. what I mean? These were these are like the Boca guys. This is like mm-hmm. Rob and Kevin like, sitting me down and saying, hey, dude. Like, this is not going to work out well for you. And those, those are the two of the smartest guys I know. Absolutely. You know, two of the most successful guys I know.
3: And in your, and in Chicago, I mean, in yeah. your absolute world. And they could control your world, potentially. So
5: Correct, yeah, yeah. And so their frame of reference is their own, you know, and they're like, we don't see this <laughs> working out well for you at all. And... I mean, I'm not, I, I would never say that that made me want to do it more, but that just kind of gave me the, <clears throat> like, maybe this ride isn't for me type thing.
3: Right. Like, if, it, if, if my stepping away means that I've ruined my career, then maybe I need a different career or right. a different approach to this one.
5: I, the, the plant uh, analogy is a good one. I like the seesaw analogy a little <laughs> bit. So if you're constantly trying to, like, find somebody to balance out the other side of your seesaw, get on a different ride. <laughs> you know, like, because, it, you know, maybe you need to do something. Maybe you need to maybe you need to get on a slide. Maybe you need right. to get on a swing set, something you can do yourself. Right. You know,
3: so they didn't scare you.
5: It, no, it terrified me. But, you know, it's one of those things. It's like you you a wife who's eight months pregnant and an older kid who, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to say she didn't know who I was, but it's like I I had worked 100 hours a week for the first two years of her life and like not cool. <laughs> not, like I, I was feeling guilty about that. And like, you know, the thing is, I I, ha- I had a little bit of a re- I still think about this, obviously, but I went to the baseball game with my dad a couple of days ago. We all saw that on Instagram. Cute dad. <laughs> that was so cute. <laughs> but, I mean, I had a thought that, to be honest, hadn't occurred to me. It's like, I don't know if I less stepped away from a restaurant or that life to be with my kids more or if I stepped away to be more like my dad. You know what I mean? And it's, it, you know six of one half dozen of the other, but um, you had a good role model. I had a great role model. And still you knew do. It,
3: it could be done. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. He
5: talks a little too much about mm-hmm. weird stuff like hooking up his refrigerator. But <laughs> no. if you can if you can listen to an hour long mm-hmm. story about that, you're golden. <laughs> Words of wisdom will, will appear.
3: I'm I'm sure there's metaphors in refrigeration <laughs>
5: every day.
4: I'm still in the schoolyard. I love that I love that schoolyard analogy. You kind of, like, know? get up the seesaw, go on the swings.
5: Yeah. If, you're, if, if, if the ride that you're on, um, if the determination of you having fun on that ride is somebody else, then at least figure out how to do one by yourself.
3: Right. You know? Yeah. Quite a I, good dad. I know, it's true. <laughs> and, then, and then if you're stuck with the seesaw, right, yep. you could just stand in the middle. Right. <laughs> right. You, like, you can even figure that out. Right. And now the food, right? Because this all is possible because you're an extraordinary cook and a humble one. And when you talk about, you know, making Midwestern food, you know, simple, true, that's all true. But it belies a much greater truth, which is there's complexity in the simplicity. Yeah. What do you think about when you're creating dishes?
5: Um... I mean, I, I I get a little bit nerdy about it. I like I am a very basic um, balancing acid and alkaline type guy, and you know we it, it takes it takes a long time to like get your palate tuned to okay. So this is an acid, this is an alkaline. Let's get them to whatever they decided on negative seven or mm-hmm. zero or whichever the ones the the middle. Um, But you can. You can think about it that way, and then you can say, like, okay, well, we have zucchini, and it was grown in this kind of soil, and, you know, whether it's from Peru or Mexico or California or Illinois, and it's going to be different this way, and you can taste it, and you can cook it, and you can see how the acidity or the alkalinity changes, and then you can, you know, add the other one and balance it.
3: That, we were just talking about balance, so you're Mm -hmm. finding balance in the food and balance
5: all in the your way life. across it's uh, it's amazing
3: maybe that's why the seesaw is even more
4: important.
3: <laughs> uh, Kate you are the greatest interviewer that I know and you, I have you I have you in this chair next to me so is there anything that you would like to ask Jason before we say thanks and move on to you
4: um, I wouldn't.
5: She's just going to say, "Couldn't you have learned how to dress better in the past four years?" <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's exactly not what I'm going to say because your green shirt matches the green wall. So, in fact, you're the best dressed person here. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I I do think it's it's phenomenal that you won two of the food world's biggest awards with two different restaurants, which is to me astonishing because it doesn't happen. I mean, just to win a food and wine best new chef award was you know, like one of the great things that can happen to you as a chef and then I think to come back with a concept with something different at a different restaurant and then to win best new restaurant just shows how much you push the envelope but in such a <laughs> pleasing way. But I would like to know how um, how your restaurant like how you would how Giant is different than Nightwood and if you feel like there's something that you've changed also given the way that the country... You were Best New Chef in 2013. 13, is that what it was? yeah. So I have to say, like, a lot has changed in the American restaurant scene in that time, weirdly. It moves fast. So I would love to know... I would love to know what you think about, like, those changes and how... And especially, like, how Giant is different um, than Nightwood.
5: Um, I mean, I... I those those two years off were, were not all like you know happy go lucky you know spending time with my kids all that stuff it was you know there's a lot of like soul searching um, there was also a lot of time on social media going I hate this trend I hate <laughs> this trend I hate this trend and you know <clears throat> when we're thinking about what we're doing it just in the back of my mind it was none of that. Like, that's, that was my, it's like, I can't, I can't spend two years hating a trend and then put it on a plate, <laughs> right? What
3: are the trends you hate the most? I just have to
5: I, ask. I think the the one that I hated the most was, was really just a plating trend. And I think, I think it's dying, but it's like when you, it was very like Nordic and I would see it and like, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the place, but they would like make this really beautiful food and then they would cover it up oh, yeah. with like, shaved turnips or leaves Mm -hmm. or like whatever and it would look you know stunning (laughs) but uh, like over like the overarching like trend that i hated was food not looking delicious Mm -hmm. you know so we wanted like our goal was to never have anybody instagram anything because Mm. the food hits the table and they're like oh my god (laughs) I, i gotta eat that and the first night that we were open for friends and family, my, my friend Ari, who's a, who's a food writer for Cranes, um, he, used to be, he used to be the Eater, Chicago editor, really great guy. He came in and he was like, he said exactly that. He was like, I didn't take any pictures.
4: <laughs> I'm like, and that's
5: night one. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, why? <laughs> you know, tell me more. <laughs> He's like, because it all just looked and smelled so delicious. I just started eating. I'm like, when? Let's keep doing that, you that's, know?
3: That's beautiful. And with that, thank you so much for, thank
5: for, you. Me, for joining us. It was really That's nice great. to see you guys. Uh, so
4: fantastic. Thank you truly. for having me. It is so great to see you. And congratulations. I feel proud, thank like you. I was so proud when you were Best New Chef, and now I'm proud of you all over again. Thanks. I say what she says.
3: <laughs> and crawlers, <laughs> And, right, scarf down crawlers. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, We're going to hear from the Oracle of the (laughs) New, Kate Crater, who is the food editor at Bloomberg News.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food, and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients, Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more.
3: This is Dana Cowan, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I am delighted to have Kate Crater in the guest chair here. You heard a little bit from her at the top of the show, but now I get to dig deep and learn more about the magic that has made Kate Crater one of the most admired, uh, reliable restaurant visionaries in America and even the world, because Kate's, Kate's traveled. <laughs> but Don't make
4: me cry. But
3: it's true. Kate has uh, eaten and observed and edited recipes. I wouldn't add cooked too much <laughs> <laughs> to that. No. Um, but has been shaping the conversation around food for um, more than two decades. And two decades at that time actually was at Food and & Wine, and, but now she is at uh, she's the food editor at bloomberg news welcome kate hi dana hi hi <laughs> i i wanted to kick off this season with you because i feel like at the in fall one always wants to take stock of what's ahead and think through what i want to be eating what's Im- important to have on my mind how should i think about um the future and
4: i couldn't think of anyone better to do that with. Oh, Dana, then, teardrops on the microphone. <laughs> I don't <laughs> hear any dropping, Kate. <laughs> don't get too sappy with me. Um, so
3: what type of moment in food do you think it is right now? Like, how would you characterize this it's, time? Because in fact, you were saying just moments ago that the restaurant world has changed so much. Mm-hmm. In you know, we were talking about from 2013 when Jason Vincent was a best new chef to today, not so many years but huge amounts of change. What type of moment do you think we're in?
4: Um, We are definitely in a moment where restaurants are really important, and I think they've become more important than chefs in some ways. It used to be we spent so much time at food and wine focused on chefs, and chefs really were everything, especially with Food Network, the power of Food Network, and, um, and people becoming more culinary savvy, and they, you know, Idolized a lot of these chefs, and you would just sit there and hope that you would see Tom Colicchio in the dining room, or Dave Chang in a Mamafuku restaurant, and that was a draw for a lot of restaurants. But now um, we've come full circle, and I think that it is the restaurant and the energy and the scene. It's it's back to sort of, you know, the '90s, maybe even the '80s, when a restaurant like Balthazar opened, and there was a seafood platter, and the energy of the dining room, and that that's what you went out for. You didn't even know who the chefs were, but there was legitimately, there was an energy that you, there was an energy then, and I feel that now. It's more, maybe it's more food-driven than it used to be. You know, you can go and be so excited because there's a modern Vietnamese place in the East Village, or there is some dynamic Cooking. I think you were, you ate Vietnamese last night. I right? did eat Vietnamese. <laughs> funny, yeah, funny. At I just house. mentioned that <laughs> exactly right. Good. Oh my gosh, Dana, you're the best, best researcher, best, best. Period. Um, so it's, I, I think that people are more drawn by different kinds of authentic foods. Maybe like a fun, funky dining room. Maybe fantastic cocktails with a great bar food scene. But I think, um, I think less. I, I think chefs. Profiles. I mean, they're the all-important guys, men and women in the kitchen, but beyond that, I think it's I think it's a restaurant and a dining room and a menu and a bar that are really bringing in people now. And do you think you were saying how food is important? I wonder whether
3: the scene can trump food, or whether oh, I used that bad <laughs> word. It's like use a swear word there, okay. um, <laughs> or whether the show. Can or the foreignness of the food. Like, one reason that I was, I loved my meal at um, Hanoi House was mm-hmm. uh, those weren't necessarily dishes that I had had before, mm-hmm. and they seemed like authentic versions of them, or the Mala Project. Mm-hmm. Um, these are both restaurants in New York that I really enjoy. Or last night, um, I went to the grill, and the scene of it uh, was a scene on so many levels, but one was the duck press making the jus for the pasta like I just I really enjoyed that and I made sure that as I went through the menu I ordered things that I knew would have a tableside um event mm-hmm. how important do you think sort of events in the dining room are in that way like you were talking about the seafood plateau at Balthasar like, that's a very dramatic thing that lands mm-hmm. on your table and you know kind of it's about the seafood but kind of it's about the whole experience of doing that collectively at a table.
4: Well, it's funny because I, I think that another trend that we're seeing now after a very long time of casual food is like, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it fine dining, but I think that there's an ambitious kind of cooking and people doing more. I, I think that we're going to see more sort of fine dining, maybe redefine fine dining, but more fine dining restaurants. And with that, I think tableside is a fun part of it. And some of that is with social media. Some of that is the opportunity to take a picture of the pressed vegetables, of the, you know, the zoo coming out from the duck press, and that whole ceremony of it is a really fun thing, and never, you know, everyone will have their camera out when that's happening, but it's not just that. I think you get to feel like you're part of an occasion. It is an event. As you said, that's a really good word. Uh, You know, I think restaurants and dining rooms function on a lot of levels for a lot of people, but... The idea that you can really be there to have fun and be entertained and find entertainment in different ways uh, is really, is becoming important. And you were
3: talking about the exciting ethnic restaurants or, you know, restaurants with a global footprint. What are you seeing that has the most traction? Like food from different parts of Asia, foods from South America, what it, what is appealing to you or you think it doesn't work that way
4: that's a good question i think um i i think that we're seeing... Actually, what I think we're seeing is a ton of Mexican food. I think that Mexican, I think that people... I know more than any other place, people have been traveling to Mexico City in my in my little world and coming back with ideas about different ways to do tacos or different iterations of kind of street food there. So I think Mexican... I think the influence of Mexico is huge. And, you know, like Rene Redzepi took his Noma pop-up there and he... I think, spotlights different cuisines that he gets interested in. And an obsession with a tortilla and how to make a good tortilla can drive the day in a lot of ways. So I see a lot of Mexico. I see, um, I, I think here in New York, there is, the tide is rising on Vietnamese food, although I can only think of a couple examples of it. I think other parts of the country are further along with Vietnamese food than we've been in New York. Uh, I think um, different, different areas of China are um you know, I think regional food regional Chinese food is making some headway here. But it's funny I can't if, if I think about what part of the world is is really important, you know, in the way the Korean took over and preserving and all that and fermenting and kimchi, I don't I think there's a lot of it's like cable T V. There's a lot of different channels on and I'm not sure there's one main one. I love that description. <laughs> <laughs> awesome Uh, i was
3: taken by one of the columns that you wrote for um for bloomberg about your favorite restaurant in america being um (laughs) better luck tomorrow of course i love the name why is that your favorite restaurant in america right now and what does that say about the future of dining
4: um did i write about better luck tomorrow yeah really Mm -hmm. where is it What's your favorite restaurant? Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip to
3: that. What is your favorite restaurant? Is it,
4: it's better. Is that not? Is that Better Luck Tomorrow in um, L.A.? No, it's Houston. Oh, Better Luck Tomorrow. Sorry, I was thinking. I was thinking another thing. It's a bar. It's, it's Better Luck it, Tomorrow. It's Justin. Yeah. You and. Um, Sorry, I was thinking of a place in L.A. And I was like, huh. Um, Better luck tomorrow is well, Houston. Oh my goodness! I know. Right Houston. now, um, uh, what I what I like about Better Luck Tomorrow, where I hadn't actually been, um, it was opening, but I'd been to Houston um, for the Super Bowl a couple months ago. What I love about the idea of Better Luck Tomorrow is that it's a very it's the combination of two really superstar. Um, people in the food and beverage industry. One is Bobby Hugel, who's like the primo tequila expert in this world. And another is Justin Yu, who is another of our food and wine best new chefs at Oxheart. And so he had decided, after doing fine dining, having just said that I think fine dining is on a roll. Justin Yu belies that. Um, and he decided he wants to do sort of more casual food. So at Better Luck Tomorrow, They are they have combined forces. So it's great bar food with, that's bar focused, that's sort of like, that's bar friendly, I should say, or cocktail friendly, along with some really great cocktails that are food minded. And as we talked about at Food mind, for a long time, the counter and bar seating has become more and more important in restaurant plan. So many people like to eat at the bar. It. It's better it's such fun interaction. You feel like you're got the best seat in the house. You can generally see what's happening in the kitchen. So it's like a free show. And so I think the idea that someone is enhancing the bar experience even more is really cool. I think about that at the office also, which mm-hmm. is Grant Atkins right. in New York City and of course also
3: in Chicago. The food is fantastic. The mussels. Those mussels are the best thing. I think the um, mussels are one of the great dishes of this year. Me too. Like, I just sop up, like, all the butter and all the jus and all of the, like, you know, the musseliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sitting there. And bacon. I, don't, don't forget and, the bacon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm drinking a great cocktail. And I don't know what. I would have called that before because mm-hmm. is it really a bar? I, the food is almost too good mm-hmm. uh, for it to go under the rubric of bar. But I think that's what you're saying is that exactly. we're seeing it's such bar a forward. Change.
4: It's bar forward, and you can sort of have it all. It's a place where you feel like you can have a great drink. And what's smart about the office, which is a really good analogy to Better Luck Tomorrow, is that. Um, They have a cocktail list that's a little idiosyncratic. Like I think they have an amaretto sour with truffle, with like a truffle essence Mm. in it. So there's things, and there's like horseradish in another cocktail. Um, So they have a very compelling cocktail list that you think, oh, I haven't really had that before. But they also love doing a dealer's choice. So you can say, I love a last word, or I love a spicy margarita, or I love a Manhattan. And they'll say, okay, let us. Blow your mind a little bit and we'll like this will have honey in it instead of Cointreau, and, and you get I mean they do even <laughs> they do more ambitious things than that. <laughs> but it's really I, I think it is really fun so you can be delighted by your drink, but then as you say the food comes, those that muscle terrine hits the table and and then And then, then I stop talking. And then you stop talking. Exactly. And I don't take any pictures just exactly.
3: to, to Jason's point a few minutes ago. So you have found trends, mind for trends. Mm-hmm. You have a skill. But what is it like? If somebody else is looking for trends, like how do you find
4: them? Like how does how do you do it? Oh wow! Um, you know, at Food and Wine, I was so lucky because I got to work with you, and I had this um, fantastic assistant, Chelsea Morse, who we had a mind meld thing together. I think I think a bunch of us together had a mind meld at Food and Wine. And so you can look and you can do it. It can be literally data-driven sometimes. You can just look and see that, as Jason was saying, you can look at menus and and find out there's a ton of horseradish and think, like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that there's a lot of horseradish? Does that mean that there's, like, Eastern European stuff coming? People are, um, you know, people are obsessed with that. Or you can also, as um, I thought that was so smart, to hear Jason talk about the presentation, the Scandinavian presentation and nature and that influence and like, too many salad or so many salad leaves that they cover up the dumpling or or whatever. Um, so you just start to see, and, you know, as, as is that um, motto, three's a trend, right? So you just have to find three <laughs> of them, and then you say trend. You start screaming trend, <laughs> and there it is. So um,
3: I wonder whether... Do you feel like trends are speeding up?
4: Slowing down? Or maybe it's what you were saying that's the cable channels? That is such an excellent question. I, I think you know it, it also comes back to that definition of what's a trend, you know, because there we had a long discussion about it at some point, whether a trend is a trend is that momentary thing that blows off as opposed to something that is long lasting, like, you know, the Oat Burger. Trend, or um, Korean, or pickling, fermenting—all those um, things that have proven to have like very deep roots. Um, you know whether that's like a movement, what what the wording is. But for trends, I love that question. And as I think about it, I think um, I think real real trends are slowing down, even as like all these sort of things, as all these things are um, speeding up and or. People will say, I mean, certainly, like some, especially if it's like an Instagram thinking, Instagram driven thing, and there's like donuts in your milkshake. You know, some of that stuff is so ridiculous, but it really does, it it really does captivate people in a way that they go out looking for it, or people want to make money and and they'll do that, and you know, the frose whatever this that. I think that's interesting. So like the the micro trends
3: are are speeding up, but they burn out faster. Yeah, and the macro trends are really on a, a slower burn yeah is sort of what you're seeing an, another um magic to uh you know your skill as a reporter is your ability to connect with and befriend everybody in um the restaurant world something that I've long mm-hmm. admired aside from your being an exceptionally kind and thoughtful person how is it that you like you connect
4: with all of these people I feel like a lot of people would love to be K creator they have mm-hmm, to learn mm-hmm. the skill first well you have to um, that's so nice to say I think um, you know I've always been in a job where you're sort of buying you know where you get to where people present you with something where it could be like a chef in Texas who has a story to tell and you get to listen to the story and then you figure out, how you, how you can tell that story. I think I've always, I've always wanted to support chefs, and I've always wanted to celebrate chefs. And if there's something that's challenging about Bloomberg, it's the fact that it's much more of a reportive place. And so, you know, I, you never just, you can, of course, never just believe what someone says. If someone says like, oh, I invented the grilled cheese sandwich, you know, I don't, I hope that I never was like, really? That's awesome. <laughs> Although I'm sure there was the day when I, would, when I said that. But certainly at Bloomberg, you have to call the mayor's office and say, like, do you have a statement on grilled cheese in New York and all this stuff? You always have to get the other side of it. And that has proven to be, to me, a little bit of a challenge because I always, always want to walk on the sunny side of the street, which was a motto we had at Food & Wine, even as we were doing, like good reporting, but we were reporting on the positive things. At Bloomberg it's much more, if someone says something, then you call up their archenemy and find out (laughs) the other side of the story.
3: Well, let's talk about transition then, because I think
4: um, as much as
3: people would love to be a writer, as you are a writer, Mm -hmm. or an editor, as you have have been, you've had a transition from one to the next. Mm -hmm. In going through this transition, what is the biggest
4: challenge you faced, and how did you face it? Uh-huh. Um, well, there's two. I would say there's two. One of them is that at Food and Wine, we always were budget conscious, and you, I mean, Food and Wine catered to a whole, a whole spectrum of people and cooks, and and whether they were home cooks or professionals with all kinds of different budgets. But in general, we were very mindful of how much you know what people what people might consider ridiculous. Um, at Bloomberg Pursuits, it's catering to people who have a lot of money and who like to spend their money on good things. So <laughs> it is kind of um, hilarious sometimes to have someone quote you the price of something and you can say, that's it." You know, Isn't there a <laughs> more expensive champagne or something like that? You definitely go looking, not for gratuitously expensive things, but for things like you can always say like, and do you have anything fancier than that? Like, so what's the
3: fanciest things you
4: found? I know that you well, have like an eight hundred dollars champagne. <laughs> although I
3: imagine champagnes can be far more than that. So. Champagnes
4: can be far more than that. As a matter of fact, today um, I just got to edit a story. It's online right now from Mark Oldman, who is a great wine writer, who we know from Food and Wine in Aspen. Um, he um, he wrote about the about tasting a hundred thousand dollar bottle of wine. It's um, a 62... And it was real. It was real. Well, that's a good question. That's the question um, in the story. It's a 62 Latash Methuselah. So it's a six-liter, one of those monster, gigantic six-liter bottles. Um, and the um, it came. It turned out that it came from that wine counterfeiter, fu- counter Dr. Rudy Kurnurian. I've read his name a thousand times in the last week, but I haven't said it out loud. Kurnurian? Let's just go with that. Exactly. Um, he um, so he got to taste someone that he knew had bought that wine, and later found out that it had come from this guy, Dr. Rudy, wine counterfeiter, who also had some legitimate bottles mixed in. So, um, so a hundred thousand dollar bottle of wine is on our website <laughs> right now, for example. But the other thing is is just to. Um, go like really go deep. I I think the way I first learned this lesson was um, Airbnb contacted me pretty soon after I started at Bloomberg. And they said that they would give me an exclusive and we love the word exclusive. Love it. um, (laughs) About how um, Airbnb had generated, I think, $2 billion for restaurants in underserved neighborhoods. And they would they were going to announce that. And they were giving me the chance to announce it. And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. Like $2 billion, perfect for Bloomberg. <laughs> so I went to my, like, I ran to my editor um, and I was like, Chris, look at this. Um, look at this. Isn't this amazing? I was like, look. And he was like, well, it sounds like typical Airbnb BS, but You should go talk to the Airbnb reporter at Bloomberg. You should call the mayor's office and see if they are coming out with legislation against Airbnb, which is why Airbnb is announcing this right now. And you should, you know, do a little reporting and find out, A, why they're announcing this now, and, B, if there's any truth to it. And was like, any truth to it? It's written in the press release. (laughs) And so um, I had to go talk to the Bloomberg Airbnb reporter who said, sounds like typical Airbnb BS, but blah, blah, blah. Like, talk, call this guy in San Francisco. So, um, it turned out to be that, um, notwithstanding any pending Airbnb legislation, <laughs> um, it turned out to be that Airbnb was sort of taking credit for the rise in restaurants in places like bed where there's a lot of Airbnb and also in DuPont Circle in Washington DC, which is where Bad Saint is, oh. which is a really popular restaurant that gained you know that had a live traction Airbnb or not. And so it turned out it was partly true at some bedside restaurants I did some reporting and I found out that they had had like a big uptick in like Swedish tourists like who were like clearly there because they were staying at Airbnbs in the neighborhood. So there was some validity to it and people who I I interviewed a bunch of people and they said actually yeah, we've seen an uptick in it but the two billion dollar thing was a um, big, maybe exaggerated. That's a learning curve <laughs> for sure, hundred percent learning curve.
3: <laughs> you came into the job of writer, reporter, editor, having gotten training at Laveran and uh, ha- just having oh, had yeah. a real passion for um, for food. What do you think the most critical things are now in order to? Launch into writing, reviewing, and just you know,
4: talking about food today, and how important was Laverne? That's another great question. Um, Laverne, Laverne was all important. Laverne was my Food and Wine before I got to come to Food and Wine, but it really was a community of people who were passionate. It was a small um, cooking school in France, and it started in Paris, uh, maybe in the 80s. And so, our the senior executive, super food editor Tina Ullaki, was there like back in the day when it was, when it was everything. But the woman who started it, Anne Willen, I think had a dream of being the British Julia Child, and it didn't quite work out that way. But she wanted. She went to the Ritz in Paris, and she thought it was too fancy and not real and not, not a real experience. So she said, right. So she found this um, chef whose name was Chef Chambret, who was the best chef ever, from like a one Michelin star restaurant in Paris, and James Beard had been a fan of his. And she hired him, um, and she took over this little storefront on the left bank on um, Rue Saint-Dominique, um, called a La Vren, and, um And she would have, it would be like eight or 10 women sitting in this very casual storefront place with this chef, like, who would show them how to make stock. It was very immediate compared to like all the gleaming, 10,000 square foot kitchens of the Ritz. This was a very immediate experience. and there were stagiaires who helped and translated. and she had um, she had like the pastry chef, the pastry chef might have come from the Ritz, but people came in and they spoke French. It seemed like a very authentic experience because in fact it was and it was learning the classics and it was a wonderful, wonderful, immersive, fantastic experience. So Laverne was great. It just made me very nostalgic. Um, but I think I think right now, um, if people want to get into the food business, and it's such a great business, I think sort of you follow your heart but have your eyes open because there's so many different channels to keep talking like a cable person. <laughs> um, you know, if you're, I think, gluten-free, 10 years ago, gluten-free seemed like a joke, ridiculous. You just were like, oh, you know, you're just paranoid or whatever. Um, and I think now it's legitimate if you're a gluten-free um, if you want to proselytize it, go into, like, start writing a gluten-free newsletter. I think there's so many different areas. If you love if you love gadgets and things like that, go, like, see if Williams-Sonoma has a job writing catalog copy. I think there's so many different ways to... Do you think there's any white space? I think, you know, one of the things
3: that's a re- as a result of food being so um, important in people's lives and in every part of their lives from the all the way from politics to just to cooking, feeding their families, to going out and having a a good time. It feels like there isn't a lot of white space. There aren't a lot of things that people haven't sort of talked about or isn't covered by like nine million passionate people. When you look out at the world, to use a food? Do you say, God, you know, there is no one doing
4: this? Well, no, it's hard to think of of a thing that someone's not doing. But it's also true that every part of the country is in play now, you know, in a way that it used to be that you were just, you really wanted to go to one of the five or six major cities. And now you can go to Indianapolis and report on the food scene in a way that can get you some attention. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a, it's very like seesaw because even as, um, even as, food magazines are coming under fire and budgets are changing and it's, it's You can say cut. You can say cut. <laughs> food budgets are cut and magazines are folding and, and everything we're finding like dramatically different circumstances. It's um there's there's new opportunities that I wish I knew exactly what they what they were and I think you and I both like we would you wanna see something something is sitting there like waiting to come up and and take over the horizon. And I think you pointed to something really interesting that does in, intrigue me a lot, which is
3: uh, going back to local. Mm-hmm. Right. So we talk about the local food movement. That's incredibly important. But as uh, towns and cities across the country have better and better food and more food opportunities. There's more opportunity to cover what is local mm-hmm. in a bigger and uh, a bigger way, and that ha- that can have a national impact, not just city city pride, but because city and local are going to be the new national. Like mm-hmm. I think people, uh, I don't know. I just have to think I, it's a trend that I'm following, sort of in a bigger way mm-hmm. than just food. But when you're talking about Indianapolis, and I just met with. Um, Martha Hoover has who has twelve restaurants Fantastic. there. She's spectacular. So inspiring. And um, you know, she is the queen of the Indianapolis food scene, and there's a lot to say about her, and she has a lot to say about her community. So I think mm-hmm. it's a time for the rise of communities and being devoted to your community.
4: I mean, pay attention to everything. Like a couple years ago at Food and Wine, you and I talked about a rise of second cities like Philadelphia. Or San Diego and how people, if you couldn't, you know, who can afford to live in New York now. And so a lot of chefs were moving there. But now it's even more immediate. Now it's Westchester. I hear a lot about, like, the I hear a, a lot about the food scene getting better and better in Westchester. And is it as good as Philadelphia or New York City? Um, clearly, I would say almost certainly not. But... I think in that same way that people move out of the city and they think, you know, the quality of life is better, chefs are seeing that, too. They have families. They want to, like, if they're not Jason Vincent and taking two years off, if they can't quite do that, they think, you know what, I have, like, a lot of my customers that came to this restaurant in New York City actually live in Dobbs Ferry or live somewhere around there. So why don't I just try, you know, the steak, the rents are, you know monumentally cheaper there's a lot i I think a lot of people are thinking that way it's um it's interesting to think about even as we hear more and more about cities and cities are getting cooler and cooler and building all these more exciting spaces i wouldn't i wouldn't um ignore the suburbs right now kate the (laughs) oracle (laughs) that's Um, also bloomberg that's a very bloomberg thing to say (laughs) we have a lot of people who live in westchester so you know you know a lot about their habits I'm starting to learn more about Westchester, is what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So two last questions.
3: What is um, your best meal ever?
4: My best meal ever? Um, You know, that's such a big question. I would say one of the most remarkable and memorable and in some ways best meal, it's it's a cliche, but I get to say this, and you were there, so it's awesome. Um, was the first time I went to Noma, which was like five or six years ago, maybe even more. Was it six? It feels like it was longer. Ago. It might have been longer. It was when Noma. It was when you knew it was great, and it was hard to get in. And it had already won. It maybe won its first. It maybe had been awarded number one restaurant in the world once, or the first time, and it had proven really hard to get into. But we were lucky, and we got to go. And it was still, back then, it was still sort of the age of Fran, Adria, and a lot of, you know, you bite into an olive and smoke comes out. There was a lot of scientific experimentation. And Rene Redzepi just came in with this natural food thing and you, even though it sounds like, like, like so gimmicky, you know, there were like vegetables in this sort of like fake, Dirt and you got, um, you got the sensation of a real forest. But what I will always remember about that meal is these two chefs came out of the kitchen. Be- beyond how cool the food is, their service model was fantastic. So they had chefs come out and serve the food before anyone else was really doing that. And um, these two, I don't know if you remember this, but these two, and they were like kids, I feel like, came out and they were so excited. And they had this um, chestnut with, I think, brown butter on it and maybe some parsley or something like that. But they were like, we've been tasting chestnuts for two weeks, but this, today, they finally hit. Like, today is the day for chestnuts. And so they were like simply shaved chestnuts and they looked like raw mushrooms, but you tasted them and they were like the essence of chestnut. Like, you didn't, you never realized how beautiful and delicious a chestnut was before. And, um, I, I think that was like one moment in a meal you know they gave us hunting knives to eat that was it venison or duck or elk or something like that there was a, there was some kind of wild animal that we had. It might have just I can't remember I think it was an elk or something, but it was um it was just it was a remarkable meal it was remarkable. So I'm sorry
3: to ask you that question because I Mm -hmm. hate answering that question. Mm -hmm. But you've had so many remarkable meals and you've had so many secret meals and you've had so many chefs like cook you things, you know, um, in strange and unusual Mm -hmm. places as part of your, you know magic being a chef whisperer (laughs) so I had to ask and
4: I'm
3: really even happier to know that I was at Mm -hmm. the um, most exceptional meal that you've ever had and the last on um, speaking broadly we like to pay it forward Mm -hmm. and nominate a woman who should be part of the Hall of Dames. Is there a woman in the food and beverage industry who inspires you every day?
4: Um, Besides you (laughs) Definitely. <laughs> Besides me, um, I would say I have a new. Um, I have a new hero. I have two people. One of them is Jordan Salcido, who is a wine genius, and she just she didn't just. But a year or two ago, she started a wine cooler brand called Ramona, and I think the way she's just always thinking, she's so smart. She wants to teach you, but she also wants to have fun. So I am a big hugest fan of Jordan Salcido, if she's not already in your Hall of Dames, which I'm sure she is. Um, But I also am a big fan of a woman called Helen Cho, who is Tony Bourdain's right-hand woman. She's at ZPZ 0.0 Productions, and she um, produces a lot of his Parts Unknown series, and I feel like she has to read his mind, and then go set the scene for some of those remarkable episodes that they shoot. And I think in this time when it's hard, you know, people shift so much. You know, there's so many different people out there and so many different voices. And um, I think that what Tony Bourdain and his team are doing, like pinpointing authentic food and going around the world and bravely focusing on so many things... I, I can't say enough good things about that. But I think behind Tony is this amazing team. And standing at the head of that team is Helen Cho. Fantastic. two
3: women for the holidays, Kate Crater, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. And for all you listeners, thank you so much for listening in. I want to thank my engineer, David Tattashore. Hey, David. <laughs> <laughs> and... Come back and listen again next week. We'll be here with fascinating people who have unusual jobs in the world of food that can inspire you and bring you joy.